0: Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Second City is celebrating Black History Month by shining a spotlight on Black performers past and present.
1: The reason why improv is such a radical act is because no matter where you are in the city, no matter where you are in the world, you can show where you grew up.
0: That's coming up in just a bit. But first, Brexit. It was a movement, then a vote then a process to separate the United Kingdom from the European Union. That process was a complex and sometimes painful political battle. It cost a number of British prime ministers their jobs. But what began with the vote in 2016 finally became official last week. Many Brits are still wondering what it will all mean for them and their families. But people in the U.K. aren't the only ones with questions. Cécile Shea is a non-resident senior fellow for global security and diplomacy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. She explains what Brexit means for the U.S., the Midwest, and particularly Chicago.
2: Well, some of those multinational firms with regional and European headquarters in London are US firms. And so right now, they're wondering, should we stay there? Should we move? Even smaller firms that export are wondering how important the UK export market really is. And what I mean by that is right now, if you are a manufacturer, or if you do value-added food, or if you're exporting grains, you export to EU standards to the UK and to the continent. If the U.K. is going to change its standards, so you would then have to meet two different sets of standards, you might start to say, well, it's not that big of a market. Do I want to go through two sets of standards? Do I want to have to go through customs in the U.K. and customs in Europe? If you're a big company, you probably will. If you're a small company, you may just kind of decide, I don't know, what should I do? So it's going to be kind of an interesting time for American businesses, including those in Chicago, as they decide if they're going to deal with a separate U.K., and what it's going to mean for them and how they interact with the EU generally. What might a
0: direct trade deal mean for markets here in the Midwest?
2: Well, first of all, I think the chances of that happening in the next year are really slim because the U.S. can't really negotiate with the U.K. until the U.K. knows whether it's going to keep following EU standards or not. So agriculture would probably prefer a bilateral free trade agreement with the UK because they could export plants raised with genetically modified seed. Right now, it's very difficult for them to do that. It also means that people making processed foods have to be very careful not to accidentally add certain products made from genetically modified seed. It also means that they have to follow very strict safety guidelines and content guidelines that are put forward by the EU, and maybe the UK would have different ones. We do a fair amount in the pharmaceutical industry and in medical technology here in Chicago, and they would prefer to have looser rules with the U.K., so they would prefer having you know, different patent obligations, for instance. So those are some of the companies that might, in theory, do better with a U.K.-U.S. free trade deal, but you have to ask what they would lose in terms of the ease of dealing with a single market would also be worth something to them.
0: When we look at President Trump's approach to trade, there is populism really at the center of that. Populism played a big role in Brexit. As we are in this election time in the U.S., what connections are you making between Brexit and the 2020 election here in the U.S.?
2: So the biggest connection that I make is wondering to what degree malevolent interference and disinformation by outside parties affected the Brexit vote at about the same time that the 2016 election was happening. It's pretty clear that Russia was desperate for Brexit to happen. It's quite clear that Russia was involved on online forums and in social media and all all the same places that they were involved here and pushing forward the Brexit approach. Now, they didn't do that in a vacuum. They understood that there was a lot of dissatisfaction in northern England and in the rural areas, that there was a lot of dissatisfaction with the economy the way that it was, with enormous cuts that were coming from London. And so it was easy to blame a lot of that on the EU. And that appears to have been a significant part of the Brexit vote. I'm not going to you know, insult the people who voted for it by saying, well, you were just all duped by the Russians. But there's no doubt that Russian disinformation and misinformation played a part in the vote. And we are still in this country and to a certain degree in the U.K. really not prepared to deal with this in the future. The Germans and the French have have made some progress. Uh, Taiwan just had an election in which they really miraculously pushed back on an enormous amount of misinformation. But we as a world community are going to need to come together and come up some plans on dealing with this because it's only going to get worse as the technological capabilities of these malevolent forces become more advanced.
0: Well, Congress just passed and President Trump just signed the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement known as USMCA. First, what are the connections between that trade deal and Brexit? Brexit.
2: So the connections between the USMCA and Brexit at this point kind of come in a secondary level. For instance, um, Ed was just discussing that the EU-Canada Free Trade Agreement forms a basis for a possible UK-EU trade deal. So it points to how multi-tangled a lot of trade deals are right now. So if you're a manufacturer in Canada, you're dealing with all of these different free trade agreements and you're trying to balance the USMCA and the rules there under the TPP because Canada is now a member of the new TPP, which is called the Comprehensive and Progressive TPP, um, with your agreement with the EU. And, and so it's not so easy being a manufacturer or an exporter anymore. And contrary to what President Trump says there's a huge number of business leaders and economists out there who think that larger trade deals involving more countries are actually better for economies and certainly better for the U.S. because it reduces complexity. And
0: you mentioned TPP. That's the Trans-Pacific
2: Partnership. Correct. Mm -hmm. Which President Trump pulled out of just as it was going to go live. The U.S. was supposed to be a member. It was going to be an agreement of 11 countries um, that would have covered all sorts of tariff lowering rules, but also labor standards and environmental standards to create a much fairer playing field between advanced countries like the U.S. and less developed countries like Vietnam, for instance.
0: But the other trade deal people are probably most familiar with is NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. How much does the USMCA differ from NAFTA?
2: It really differs very little from NAFTA. It provides some of the modernizations that all three countries had wanted in the first place. You know, the plan before President Trump ended NAFTA and created the USMCA, the plan was to modernize NAFTA and add things about the digital economy, which didn't even exist in the early 90s when people were negotiating NAFTA. So it does add those, and and that's really good, and that will be good for the U.S. economy. Um, The section on autos actually becomes less good for U.S. consumers. The price of autos is probably going to go up because of some protectionist measures that the U.S. has inserted. But the really big difference that has not gotten as much press as it should is that there is a sunset clause in the new USMCA so that the agreement sunsets ends after 16 years. And what the agreement says is after six years, so six years from now, the parties will come together and agree whether they should extend another 16 years. So it would be 16 years from six years from now. And if any of the parties votes no, we're not going to add, then they'll keep coming back to the table every year to try to renegotiate an amendment or a new agreement. What this does is it means that trade with Canada and Mexico is going to constantly be a political issue in all three of our countries, because we're always going to be a step away from ending the agreement. And if you're a manufacturer thinking of building a plant, putting a billion dollars in a plant because you want to take advantage of the USMCA, or you're going to redesign a car or a piece of equipment to meet USMCA content rules, because there has to be certain content from certain countries in any product, and you know that this agreement may go away in 10 or 11 years, you're not going to bother. You're going to not make that investment based on USMCA. You still may make the investment, but it's not going to be based on USMCA. And so that takes away a certain amount of predictability that was really a strength of NAFTA.
0: That's Cecile Shea. She's non-resident senior fellow of global security and diplomacy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And we've been talking about recent trade news and what Brexit may mean for the Midwest and Chicago in particular. Cecile, it's
2: always great to have you on. It's great to be here. Thanks.
0: February is Black History Month. To celebrate, Chicago's Second City will perform a series of shows based on pieces by some of its most famous black alumni, people like Keegan-Michael Key, Amber Ruffin, and Sam Richardson. Second City has been a major name in improv since the 1950s. It started as an all-white group and added its first black performer in 1966. During that time, the theater had a front-row seat to the change in racial dynamics and performance. The Black History Month show, which runs through the first week of March, is a mix of satire, improv, and comedy that highlights diverse up-and-comers in Chicago's comedy scene. Joining us now to discuss are Diana Griffins-Irons, Director of Diversity, Talent, Inclusion at Second City, and Max Thomas. He's a performer with the group. Deanna,
3: Max, welcome to Reset.
0: Thank you for yes, having us, thank Jen. Thank you for having us. So why did Second City decide to produce a show specifically for Black History Month, Deanna?
3: Well, I did a lot of outreach I'm from Second City, Detroit, and wanted to have more representation on the stages of people that look like me, more brown faces. And so I cultivated a group of improvisers, poets, dancers back in 2002. owner saw it and said, oh, my goodness, how can we do more of this? This is a great idea. We need to bring more audiences in. And that is what launched the expansion of the Diversity Inclusion Program and kept the Black History Month show going on and on in different reiterations each year. That was the genesis of it. And explain a little bit more about the role you play at Second City. In my role, I produce shows. I mentor talent. I scout talent. I also do a lot of teaching. And um, my work is about bridging that gap. Bringing more people of color to the stages to learn the art form, to study it, and to have a career, making a career path for their work in improv and comedy. Hmm.
0: Why do you think there's been a barrier to diversity in improv specifically? Because I think when people think about comedy, they can name a long list of comedians of
3: color pretty easily. But improv, it seems like it's a little harder. It is. And, you know, it's an expensive art form, (laughs) you know, so accessibility is also, I think, a barrier where one, taking the classes to have those classes financed, having access to the training and the development. Of course, we've always been doing comedy, right? Mm -hmm. Comedy has always been an art form that people of color have been using for many, many years. But improvisation, its roots with Second City and University of Chicago, you know, that started with a group of white intellectuals, you know, Mm -hmm. I think also regionally in the city, Mm -hmm. And the finances and the groups who had started with University of Chicago and specifically with Viola Spolin's work at improv, I think that was a barrier in itself. But has it been a barrier that we haven't been improvising? I would say no, Mm. because we have used improvisation in our work and in different art forms for many, many years, which is why you have spoken word, you have music, you have dance, just in different forms. Max, when did you first start doing improv?
1: Oh, I think I was always doing improv. I was a... uh, I think by the time I was three years old, I was doing an impersonation of Jimi Hendrix. Oh, you know? wow. So I, was, so I was always doing some improv. The first time I ever took a class at Second City, I had to be about 13, I oh, think, was the young. first time. Yeah, first time I took the, uh, took a summer bridge program that they had. which was basically like two weeks to kind of give you an entry into um, Second City. You get sketch writing over that two weeks. You get a lot of improv. Uh, you get like building the ensemble, a lot of games in terms of working as a community, working together. Oh, that really lit the fire under me
0: How to would to continue improv. How would you describe improv? Because I think from the outside, people say, oh, that's easy. You just get up and you sort of pretend. But there is a craft. There's oh, yes. an art to it. How would you describe improv
1: it? Improv is a radical act. I love improv. Improv is something that's just like with jazz, like where you can go to the furthest point, kind of like the furthest thought that a person's brain would go to. You can create it on that stage. That's the really cool thing about it, is that you're on stage with just chairs, sometimes not not any chairs, but you're creating everything. You're creating a complete world, and I believe that the reason why improv is such a radical act is because no matter where you are in the city, no matter where you are in the world, you can show where you grew up. You can show your lens through improv. You don't need to buy set pieces or anything like that, but on that stage, you can create it and then you understand that everybody on that stage is there to support that.
0: Why was it important for you to be a part of this performance?
1: Uh, well, I just I really wanted to celebrate the, the black folks that uh, have come through Second City. I'm from the south side of Chicago, still live on the south side of Chicago. And there's a lot of black people in the city that don't know about Second City or they know about Second City through people like Keegan Michael Key, but they can't really pinpoint. Okay, what? Where was? You know, what show was he in? Or it's it's it becomes this thing where it's well maybe they might have gone through there, but I don't really I can't really pinpoint it like you can with uh, Eddie Murphy doing um, Too Hot in the Hot Tub, you mm-hmm, know, on SNL. Mm-hmm. And you could pinpoint what year that is. I really want people that just like myself as a kid. 12, 13 years old to come and see this and say, Oh wow, I see myself on that stage. You know, I think that a lot of times there's so many, whether it's college, whether it's institutions of like theater and stuff, it's you know, a lot of these places are are places of privilege. And a lot of times when you go to these places, most of them are white-centered places. And and I believe that for this, it's very purposeful for you to see, wow, you see this this black cast, you see a lot of young black people that are talking about something, and you see that the writing, the archive scenes that we're doing in it, the black people that had come through, whether it's 20, 30 years ago, they were talking about something.
0: Deanna, talk a little bit about how the show is structured.
3: Well, it's a one act. There's no intermission at all. So like any Second City show that you would see, it's an amalgam of different scenes. So you're going to see different characters. So unlike a traditional theater play where you'll see one character go on a journey, you're going to see a lot of different characters in different situations different environments, um, different moments, different situations that come up that have a meaningful, I would say, comment on Mm -hmm. society, on the world or something socially that's going on. So it's definitely similar. You know, when we say improv, it's definitely similar to kind of a Saturday night live show Mm -hmm. because you see different sketches. You'll see a mix of music. You'll see an improv segment where the actors will get suggestions from the audience and do an improv game and then we'll go back into scenes and then you'll also see short joke scenes which are called blackouts.
0: Mm-hmm. Max, the work you'll be performing is, I mean, it was originated by some people we're very familiar with now, yes. as you mentioned, Keegan Michael Key, Amber Ruffin. What is it like for you, somebody who's been doing improv since he was a toddler, <laughs> to step it into these scenes and, and step into the work um, by some of, some of the most recognized people in the business right now?
1: Well, first, it's an honor, and I believe that it's just as, you know, if I was stepping into, uh, like, August Wilson's work, you know, I want to pay respect, pay homage to it. So for me, it's very important because it's this kind of reminds me of, like, uh, Catherine Cleaver. I saw her speak at University of Chicago a couple years ago, and she talked about that um, it was very, very important that herself and others documented the work as it was going on. And she was honest. She said, without us documenting it, this would not live on. You know, the movement would have died after Dr. King was killed, after Huey was incarcerated, after many Black Panthers were exiled. And I believe with this, it's important for us to document the work, you know, and for us to recreate the work now in 2020. Some of these scenes or a lot of these scenes are 20 years old. And at that time, especially a lot of these performers like Keegan, Naima Funk, Amber, they might have been the one or two black people in the space. So for them to be on stage at that time was a radical act for them to show up for us for maybe there to be one or two black people in the audience at that time that were coming to see the show is awesome, you know, because I'm reminded of, wow, there's somebody that had my back 30 years ago. Somebody had my back 20, 10 years ago. So it's important for me to have my back for the future.
0: That's Max Thomas. He's an improv performer with Second City. Also with us, Deanna Griffins-Irons, Director of Diversity Talent Inclusion at Second City. And we're talking about their upcoming shows celebrating Black History Month. Deanna, what do you think some of the challenges are today for for black comedians
3: and improv and, and performers? Oh my goodness I, f- I feel like that we're constantly having to remind ourselves that one we don't need permission from other people to say what we want to say and to do yes. what we want to do so we have to have that remembrance in ourselves and the obstacles of those historically, and people who have not wanted our voices and our stories to the forefront um, has been a challenge. So we're always trying to push through obstacles to be heard, to be seen, to be visible, to be visible. I mean, I couldn't believe that there were more people of color taking advantage of this great comedy institution. Regardless of its roots, this is a comedy mothership here in the city of Chicago. And so when I heard that, oh my God, where are all the people of color doing comedy? As if, blinders were on and no one had seen us, then I was empowered and I was infuriated at the same time, mm-hmm. infuriated that people had blinders on and they didn't see us in a city in one of the you know, second largest cities in the world that is doing incredible great theater and that people didn't know where were people of color. So that became a passion for me and a, well, I'm going to show you. In fact, I'm going to remove these invisible lines that exist in Chicago. I'm not from Chicago, so I don't see invisible lines among, in neighborhoods. And I'm going to bring people from the west side, from the south side, from the north side, who may not have been exposed to this improv art form, bring them to this institution in our space and let you hear the words. So if you're not going to those neighborhoods or to those spaces, then I'm going to bring those artists here in the space and form a community and hear this work because ultimately it is the voice, our voice is a part of American history. Yes. Max,
0: you're, you're, you're co-signing a lot mm-hmm. of what you're saying. Go ahead. Well, an example
1: of Deanna's reach, or an example of the outreach and diversity, has been that I remember my first class. It was a two-week intensive in the summer of 2010, and in that class was myself, Allie Barthwell, who's the director of this Black History Month show, uh, Little Rail, Mm. Who you know everybody knows uh, through through Get Out and through his own TV show that he had and his new special like all these people are together. Chris Red is there, you know. Like Deanna has really been doing this work of fully bringing in everybody from every community. Whether you're black and you're from the suburbs, you're from the inner city. If if you were in the Chicagoland area, especially, you were you are able to come through Second City and experience comedy fully. And uh, I think looking back on my life, I know I'm, you know, only 26, but I don't like look it back like, wow, this is for at least 15 years, close to 15 years of my life, I've been able to experience Second City and see another black person that has long curly hair. I've been able to see black people with, you know, locks come through there. I've been able to see all kind of black folks. That's what I mean. And the representation has been strong. And I think that that's because we continue to push and we continue to create space for each other. And I think that's, that's the biggest thing is really creating this space and creating opportunities where we can fully express ourselves and there isn't any, lack of better words, there isn't any of that Bill Cosby respectability politics mm. type.
0: Well Well, I mean, that, that leads me <laughs> to my next question because I, when I've seen Second City shows, you know, sometimes you tackle really touchy issues. Yes. And for you, how do you thread that needle? It's like we want you to laugh, mm-hmm. but we also want you to take something away from this. We want you to think more deeply. Yes. So how do you how do you thread that needle?
1: I think that it's always the the moment of surprise. It's kind of like Dick Gregory has that joke from the 60s where he talks about that he was at a, uh, a restaurant where he had just ordered a chicken and then a Klan member comes into the restaurant and says, boy, you know, whatever you do to that chicken, we're going to do to you. And then he picked up the chicken and kissed his butt. <laughs> You know, like
0: the, <laughs> things like that, where it's,
1: where it's I set up this, you know, horrible situation, this horrifying situation or a situation where you, you could even be experiencing, a, uh, you know, microaggressions, just like there's a scene that we have in the archive where it's all about white co-workers coming up to their black co-workers and putting on whatever they feel is like a black dialect or referencing things they feel that are only for black people and doing, doing weird handshakes and things like that. Like that. So you set up experience like that. And then especially, I love it because I believe as black people, we'll, we'll create a situation where we'll make the audience first go, ooh, and then we'll bring them into this like pool of laughter of that. The fact that we're laughing at the absurdity of all of these things. And again, bringing up like Dick Gregory, as he said, you know, sometimes you have to laugh to stop from crying. And I think that that's the a lot of times the most important thing is how we weave it is through us. Creating something where you can honestly say we've we've cried about it, but we're able to laugh. The laughter is coming out of the hope that we
0: always have. That's Max Thomas. He's an improv performer with Second City. Also with us today, Diana Griffin's Irons. She's the director of diversity, talent, inclusion at Second City. And if you're interested in checking out the show honoring Black History Month, it'll be performed at the Second City Theater on Tuesdays and Wednesdays at eight p.m. starting February fourth, all the way through March eleventh. Tickets can be found at. Second city.com max diana thanks so much for speaking with us thank you thank you, thank you for having yes. us and that's today's reset join us again tomorrow for more conversations about chicago and the people who make our city great i'm jen white thanks for listening and let's talk again soon